0: It's an honor to bring the word to us this morning. Uh, We've been tracking through the book of Philippians. This morning we're gonna be in Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. And before we get to our text today, we're just gonna give a quick recap of where we've been so far in the book. So Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians and he's writing it from prison. Epaphroditus, who we'll read about today, brought a gift to Paul while he was in prison, and this gift was from the church in Philippi. And when he went, he also provided Paul with an update on how the church was doing. So now Paul's writing back, hence the letter. So far, we've learned that Paul praises God for his work in them, and he prays for them. He's praying for their progress, their growth in Christ, for their love to abound, He wants them to know, he says, that even when he's in prison, the gospel is advancing, and in that he rejoices. He knows he could die in prison, but he also wants to stay for the Philippians, he says. He thinks it's necessary that he stays for them. Regardless, whether he lives or dies, he knows that his life is Christ's. But he would like to stay. He says that he's confident that he will stay. Why? For their progress and joy in the faith. So two things. One, we see Paul's priorities, what he cares about, what he longs for, for this church. But note also his humility. humility. Last week, Austin reminded us of the humility of Jesus, how even though he was God, he became man And notice Paul's reflection of that himself, that Paul would love to go and depart and be in glory, but he chooses to stay in the flesh, desires to stay in the flesh for the sake of the Philippians. So he's convinced he's going to stay for their progress and joy, and then he spends the next 22 verses calling them to progress. We learned that last week, progress happens through unity in the church, and unity happens through humility, the humility of Christ. We have to ask, what does he mean by progress? What do we mean by progress? How do we define that? And we've been defining that as the gospel advancing both internally and externally. Paul says this is what happen- is happening through him being in prison. The guards are coming to faith as he has an opportunity to share the gospel, and the brothers are being more bold to speak the word without fear. So the believers are growing, they're sharing their faith because they see Paul's in prison for Christ, and guards are coming to faith externally. And we learned last week that Paul is calling them to walk in a worthy manner of the gospel. Again, showing that the way to progress is through unity, he says. He wants them to be of one heart, one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. It's clear that in the church, there was some sort of issues with unity. As we'll read in chapter four, in the very least between two women, but likely larger in the church. So it makes sense why Paul keeps calling them to not grumble, not complain, to do nothing out of selfish ambition. So this morning, What we're going to see is how Paul's plans and partnerships point us towards progress. So, so far we've seen Paul's priorities point us towards progress, Paul's perspective points us towards progress, and Paul's posture points us towards progress. Again, last week Austin mentioned in verse 27 that it's the thesis of the letter. So he wants them Make progress, and now we're going to see how he plans for their progress. And with that, we're going to pick it up in Philippians 2 19 to 30. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. The truth sets us free. Your word sanctifies us. Lord, we need your help we humbly come to you asking that you pour your spirit upon us to work through the text this morning, ultimately to see Jesus, to see what his humility looks like in action, and then ourselves to be transformed into this humility. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're gonna work through the text in the following way. First, we're gonna look at Paul's plans and how they point us towards progress. And then we're gonna look at Paul's partners and how they point us towards progress. Ultimately, seeing how both of these men reflect the humility of Christ that we saw last week. These men are examples of this humility to which he is calling the Philippians to live out. And that's what we wanna see this morning. What is practically, what does it mean? to have the humility of Jesus. So let's look at Paul's plans. If you notice in verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. He goes on to say in verse 24 that he trusts in the Lord that he himself will come and that he's he says it's necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus. So he, he's planning to send these two men. Notice, why he's sending them. We'll come back to that in a minute here, but how would they know these plans? How would they learn about these plans to come? He says in verse 25 he thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, but in verse 19 he hopes to send Timothy. So Epaphroditus would have gone before Timothy. He would have taken this letter, Paul's response back to them, informing them of his imprisonment, how the gospel's advancing, and his encouragement and exhortations to them, and then Timothy would have followed shortly. One thing to note is this phrase, I hope in the Lord, and I trust in the Lord. This could convey several meanings, such as ultimately committing the plans to God, or it could mean confidence that the Lord will bring these, pan, these plans to pass, and I think both are clear here, Paul is living out Proverbs 16 9. The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. In Psalm 37:5, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. So Paul's making plans, but he's committing them to God. We understand this even here at Riverstone firsthand. Our church is always planning. We have to plan. Planning is necessary and good. We're we're planning to advance the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. We do this by planning ministry events, by planning to train small group leaders. We plan all sorts of things at Riverstone. But we've also seen over the last several years plans get interrupted, changed, and not come to pass between COVID, between pastoral and staffing transitions, things have changed. But we're still here, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because we're unified, and we commit our plans to the Lord. We know that He has to be the one to bring the plans to pass, and we trust Him. We've seen humility and unity in our elders and our pastors as things have changed and gone differently than what we might have expected or planned for. So, Paul is committing his plans to the Lord. But what's the purpose of these plans? How do they point towards progress? We're going to see that he's sending Epaphroditus for their joy and Timothy for their progress. He says, starting in verse 25, that it's necessary to send Epaphroditus. Why? Verse 26, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. Moving down to 28, therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. So he's sending Epaphroditus for their joy. Joy is important in this letter. It, the word joy or rejoice is used 16 times, often with this phrase, in the Lord. And he says that when you see him again, receive him in the Lord with all joy. It's possible that they thought Epaphroditus failed his mission because he didn't come back yet. We're not 100% clear on that, but it's possible, which might make sense why he's calling them to receive him with joy. They might have thought he failed. But regardless, he wants them to have joy. But not just a joy, a joy in the Lord, where the Lord is the source of their joy. Joy because the Lord healed him and had mercy on him. And notice that this would be a mutual joy. This would be a unified joy. Paul's eager to send him. Paul would be as joyful to let Epaphroditus go back to the Philippians. Epaphroditus would have joy for seeing them again, and then the Philippians themselves would have joy for seeing Epaphroditus, their brother, who they sent off to Paul. So he's sending Epaphroditus for their joy, and he's sending Timothy for their progress. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition." What does he mean by that? Learn of your condition. For this, we need to go back to verse 27 in chapter 1. Notice, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come, Paul would like to go, he trusts in the Lord, he's going to go, or remain absent, the plans are ultimately in the Lord's hands. He does not know. I will hear. Of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, Paul's making plans to hear of their progress. And this progress, as we defined, is that this church is responding to Paul's letter in obedience, seeking unity that comes through humility. Paul wants to hear this. He wants to hear that this church is making, a progr- is making progress. How does that sit with us? It could come off as you're sending Timothy to hear a report of how we're doing. That could seem micromanage-y, but it depends on how we view the Christian life, our need for others, and our humility to talk about the progress of the gospel in our lives. To do this, we need an upside-down perspective. The world says, that's none of your business. My life is none of your business. You don't need to hear how I'm doing. The church says, I need you. I need to hear how you're doing. I want to hear how you're doing. I pray for your growth in Christ. Paul understood this because he understood Ephesians 4. He wrote it. Listen to Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 13. He says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Notice why. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In order for the body to grow, we need each other. That's how we become more like Jesus. We cannot not become more like Jesus without brothers and sisters in our lives asking how we're doing and us sharing how we're doing. This is not micromanaging. We understand this even today. We want our kids to make progress in school and sports, so we we ask how their day was. What did they learn in school? We sign them up for sports clinics. We want to make progress in our careers. We want to make progress financially. We want to make progress in our marriages. My wife and I are potty training our oldest son. We want him to make progress. And when he does, we rejoice. These are all good things, but how much more should we desire our progress, our growth in Christ, and not just for ourselves, but for each other? That's humility. That is Christ-like humility. And the beauty is, this progress is promised. Promised by God. God. We learn this in Philippians 1.6, when Paul said he knows God will complete his work in them. We know this from Philippians 2.13, when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Notice, even in his tone in, in verse 19, it's a tone of encouragement, a tone of confidence. He says, I want to be encouraged I'm sending Timothy, so I will be encouraged when I hear of your condition. Paul's not asking in doubt. He's not looking for a report with a critical spirit, trying to manage their behavior. He's asking with confidence because he knows God is working in them, and he knows God will complete their work in them, his work in them. And we need to know this progress is promised because progress is hard. But it's necessary. How can it not be when God is the one working in us, when we are Christ's? So we need to know progress is promised. We can ask ourselves questions like, is is the gospel growing? Is my evangelistic effort at work or in my family or with my friends, is my sharing of the gospel doing anything? Is it going anywhere? Jesus told us the kingdom of God is grow small in steps and phases starts out like a mustard seed but it's promised the kingdom of god will come and it is growing we can ask ourselves if we're growing to bring it home we see pride in our lives we ask are we growing in humility we see other sins other areas of our lives that we want to make progress in we long to make progress in And we can doubt, we can despair. I know that. I know many in this room and myself included. This can be a feeling that we struggle with. We need to know progress is promised. So Paul, as we see, is sending, making plans to send Timothy and Epaphroditus for their progress and joy which is exactly what he said in verse 25 in chapter 1, why he was convinced he would stay for their progress and joy in the faith. Now, let's see how his partnerships point us towards progress. First, it's important to see that these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are indeed partners. They are gospel partners with Paul. He says of Timothy, "'I have no one else of kindred spirit,' He has served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. He was mentioned in the beginning of the letter as, as, as writing alongside Paul. Of Epaphroditus, he says, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need and that he risked his life for the work of Christ in serving Paul. So these men are partners with Paul And advancing the gospel. But there's a reason why he's sending these two men specifically. Note his the the words he used. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. I have no one else like him, he says of Timothy. Paul's sending these two men because they exemplify the humility of Christ that he is calling them to. And not only do they exemplify it, they've shown it specifically to the Philippians. They've seen it in them. Paul is not playing favorites here. He's not. We know Paul has other gospel partners that he loves dearly and serves in gospel ministry with. But he sends these two men because it's necessary And that says something. There's some people that we should look and see Christ-like qualities in, humility in, and want to see and learn from and grow. So Paul's sending these two men. Let's look how these men exemplify the humility of Christ, which we saw last week looks like counting others more significant than ourselves and looking not out for our own personal interests, but for the interests of others. So let's start with Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 30. We read that he was sick near the point of death and that he risked his life for the work of Christ. This was a part of him bringing this gift. So in bringing this gift from the church to Paul, he risked his life. But how does he respond in his sickness? What does the text tell us? That he was longing for, distressed, that the Philippians heard that he was sick. We don't know if they knew more than that. It's possible. But it just tells us that they heard he was sick. And the distress, it brings Epaphroditus. Perhaps he's wondering if they feel guilty for for, for sending him off, and now they know that he's sick. Perhaps he's, he's scared of, of what's going to happen to them, how they'll respond if he dies. Needless to say, it's bringing him to stress, and what he cares more about is longing to see them, to bring them joy. He has their interests above his own. He's counting them more significant than himself. He also does this in the fact that he risks his life for them, this word risk is important. It means to throw aside or expose oneself to danger. Epaphroditus knew what he was getting into. He, he was taking a letter to Paul in prison, and Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. He, he knew what he was signing up for, but he did it because he counted Paul, Paul's needs in prison more significant than himself. He counted the Philippians more significant than himself. This man exemplified the humility of Christ to this church for the sake of the gospel, because he wanted the gospel to progress internally and externally. A quick note on this phrase that he risked his life for the work of Christ. Again, he's bringing a gift to Paul, but we're told that it was the work of Christ This is important. This is good. Because at Riverstone, I see this all the time. People meeting each other in their needs. My wife and I have experienced this firsthand through births of children, through suffering, our small group, others coming alongside us, bringing meals, and we're not the only ones. I know it. This is the work of Christ. We should rejoice in this, that our church is living this out. Now let's look at Timothy in verses 19 to 24. How does Timothy exemplify this humility of Christ? Notice it says that he's he's not just concerned, he's genuinely concerned. We're told to let love be genuine, and we know the difference. All of us can know the difference when someone's loving us genuinely, someone genuinely concerns, or if they're not. And what does he care about? He cares about their progress. He cares about their welfare. So Paul is sending Timothy to hear of their progress, but he's sending him because he cares. He cares about their progress. And the Philippians knew this. How? Because in Acts 16, he was there when Paul planted the church. Timothy was a part of planting this church with Paul. He loved them. He loved the Philippians and cared about their progress. Notice the similar language between verses 21 in chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5 in chapter 2. In, in chapter 4, or sorry, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also the interest of others. And he says of Timothy, they all seek after their own interest, but not Timothy. These men don't seek after, these men seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But Timothy, he seeks after Christ's interests, which is interesting the way he phrases it. John Piper said it well, you would have expected him to say they all seek their own interests, not the interest of others, because that's what it says in verse 4. But he says, they all seek their own interests, not the interest of Christ's. What does this tell us? It tells us that to seek the interest of others is to seek the interest of Christ. I think this is what Jesus means in Matthew 25 when he says, in that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When we seek the spiritual good, the the progress of the gospel in others' lives, we are seeking the interest of Christ. That's what Christ wants us to do. It's what he cares about. So, are you seeking Christ's interests? If so, we'll be seeking the interests of others. So, Timothy exemplified the humility of Christ, and Epaphroditus exemplified the humility of Christ. So, these partners of Paul's point us towards progress, and that they are models of the humility of Christ to the Philippians for their progress and joy. And this is a humility. That Paul is calling the Philippian church to have. So they would see it. Paul is, they they would have seen it. Paul is writing to them about it. So they know what this humility looks like. They see it. And as we noted last week, the connection between unity and humility. We see the humility of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and we see their unity. They are unified. In advancing the gospel. They're unified in their love for the church in Philippi. They're unified because they have humility. All three of them are seeking the interest of this church above their own. They're counting them more significant than themselves. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? We're being called by God to walk in a worthy manner, in a worthy manner of the gospel. We're being called to unity and humility. We're being called to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. And we need the humility of Christ. So we know what it looks like now. We've seen it. How do we apply this? And we're going to look at one, one major application and lived out in three different ways, and then we're going to move towards the Lord's Supper. So, our application is that Christ-like humility cares about the progress and joy of others. So, how do we do it? Well, first, we're going to think, how do we think about it? What do we believe about humility? How do we understand it? Do we have a worldly view where we think that To make progress, you need to be proud. You need to be on top. You need to be the best, a know-it-all. Or do we understand that what Jesus said, that the greatest is the least, the servant among you? To be a disciple, which everyone who believes in Jesus is, is to be a servant. How do you think about that? It's important for, for anything to get to the heart. It first needs to go through our minds. So what do we believe about humility? In John 13, after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, humbled himself before them to wash their dirty feet, he gets up and he says, do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you. So do we understand what humility is and our need for it, and that it's necessary as Christians? This should exemplify through our character. So what do you believe about humility? Is it necessary? Is it good? Is that the way to progress? Then we could think about it in terms of external application, things we can actually do. Well, Paul makes plans to hear of progress. What about us? Do we plan times in our marriages, in our families, with our kids, to ask about their spiritual life, how they're doing? Do we take time to get to know those in our small group and grab coffee with them? We can make plans. Plans to not watch TV on one night so we can have conversations with our spouses and kids about our spiritual lives, how we're growing in Christ, what we're learning. We can plan to get coffee with someone from our small group or someone from church and and, and get to know them. What about new believers? We recently saw many, many get baptized, and it's exciting. We should rejoice, but do we care about how they're doing three months later? Do we take time to remember them, pray for them, reach out to them, encourage them to grow in the progress of the gospel? We can ask questions like, how are you doing spiritually? What's been good this week, hard, bad? What's it like for you to live for Christ at work and share the gospel with others? How do you do that? But when we do this, we do it with confidence, knowing that progress is is promised so we can take time to plan to ask to invest in others to invest in our church to seek the gospel progress and we do so with confidence this is living by faith believing God will do what he says in humility we can share our lives with others do you let others into your life when people ask you how you're doing, do you have an attitude of that's, that's none of your business? Or do you, in humility, share how you're doing? Share where you're growing, where you're failing, where you want to grow. Ed Welch said in his book, Caring for One Another, which I know several of our small groups have gone through and I would highly recommend, says, One way to put humility to test is to ask this, ask someone to pray for you. And I'll add, ask someone to pray for you in a specific area of your life where you'd like to see progress for the gospel. Interestingly enough, the first chapter in his book is with all humility, and the second chapter of his book is move towards one another. And that's what we're seeking to do, to be humble and to move towards each other for the sake of the gospel. So, we have to, we we can apply this in how we think about humility. Maybe there's, maybe we need to change our thinking to be aligned with Christ's, and know that we're called to be servants. We can do things like plan, but how do we get it in the heart? How does it get from here to here? We long to be humble. We long to be like Jesus, but how? Austin shared last week that It's not possible to be humble by exerting pressure on yourself or or trying to conjure it up within. So how do we get it? And it's only by looking to Jesus. It's the gospel that works humility in us. It's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation, past, present, future. It's in the gospel that Jesus humbled himself to become a man, to the world he created, but did not know him. To come to his own, but his own did not receive him. It's because of the humility of Christ that the gospel is. If Jesus did not humble himself, there is no gospel. His humility is the gospel. In his book, Humility, which Austin referenced last week, Andrew Murray says, His humility became our salvation, and His salvation is our humility. Humility is found only in Christ, and we see it in the gospel. So we look to Jesus. What does that mean, though, look to Jesus? So that can be confusing, sound weird. How do we look to Jesus? Well, we look to Him by faith in the Scriptures We read God's word, believing it's God's word, and we trust Jesus. We see him and believe that he did humble himself for us, that he did die for us. And one way we do this is through the Lord's Supper, which we're going to move towards now. Because it's in the Lord's Supper where we remember, with the elements, Jesus' humility that he became a man and broke his body for us, that he poured out his blood for us for the remission of sins, that he is our righteousness. Progress in the gospel is not our righteousness. Humility is not our righteousness. Jesus is. And with that, we're going to go towards the Lord's Supper. And to do that, we're going to read Isaiah 53. We're going to read Isaiah 53 this morning. We're going to start in chapter 52, verse 13. And as we read this passage, notice the humility of Jesus. By faith, keep your eyes on Jesus in this text. See his humility for you, for me, for us. See him in his humility dying for our pride so that we could know humility. Let's read Isaiah starting chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty, humility, the king of glory coming down, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, our pride But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities, Jesus counting us more significant than himself. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he came man, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in his humility, dying to save us. This is where we see humility. One way we can even practice humility this morning is by coming, one, in humility to the table, knowing our own need for Jesus. He rescued us. We are proud. We are the sheep who go after our own way. And he came for us. And two, we can practice humility by taking communion as a body this morning. Communion is not just an individual thing. Jesus instituted Communion for the church. It's in in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul rebukes the church because they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Why? Because there's division and pride separating rich from poor. Communion is to be done as a body with unity. So we rejoice that Jesus died not just for me and you, but for your brothers and sisters in this room. So as we take a moment to pray, let us come humbly, remembering that Jesus, in his humility, died for us, for us, for you and your brothers. Praise God that he died for your brothers and sisters. Count them more significant than yourself. Let's take a moment to silently pray. Lord Jesus, Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that between you, the Son, and the Spirit, there is unity amongst the plan of salvation and that in your unity, Jesus humbled himself to become a man, to joyfully, willingly die for us, that he counted us more significant than than himself and he's the Lord Thank you that he put our interest above his own. Lord, help us by faith to see Jesus now as we partake of the bread and the cup and to be strengthened in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread together. You can open up your packet and grab the bread. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His body broken for us let's eat take the cup now Jesus' blood poured out for us for the remission of our sins let's drink we'll pray for a moment Father, we just wanna praise you for sending Jesus to die for us. We praise you for your word to us this morning. And we ask that as we leave here, we will keep looking to Jesus as our humility, knowing that it's his humility that defines our humility, that it's his righteousness that is ours, that it's his humility that, it's, that is our salvation. And let us seek to live that humility out in our families, at work, in our small groups, at our church here. Let us be a church that is unified on advancing the gospel because we humbly seek the interest of others above our own. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord be with you all this week.